You know, when we think about people like Abraham, we tend to think of them as being larger than life, right? We think of their faith as unattainable. Uh, when you think of Abraham or Moses or the Apostle Paul or Peter or whatever the Bible hero is, you pull out of the Bible, we, we see them kind of in this shining armor, um, and they're in this category, and we're in this category. And the thing about the Bible is, when it shares the stories of these people, it shares their imperfections, and they were all imperfect. Uh, there's only one hero out of the Bible. There's only one in the Bible who is perfect, and we see him with the, the shining character all throughout, and that's the Lord Jesus. But every other character in the Bible, the Bible's pretty careful to point out usually their flaws, uh, especially the major characters like Abraham, for instance. But when we tell our stories, and when we think of these people, when we tell our own stories, we don't like to highlight the failures, even though our faith journey is full of failures. But we don't highlight the failures, we highlight the successes. You know, I've, uh, I, from my baseball playing days as a kid, I've still got two baseballs, right? Uh, one is from a Little League home run that I hit off my best friend growing up, and the other one is a high school home run, the uh, only home run I hit in high school. And I've still got those baseballs with the information and the dates on those things. Only two baseballs I kept. Now, I struck out way more than I hit home runs. <laughs> and I don't have a single baseball from a strikeout. And I'd be willing to bet you, last night, the Chicago Cubs clinched the National League pennant for the first time since 1946 or something like that. And I would be willing to bet that next season, whether, whatever happens in the World Series, that there will be a flag that, that will be raised at Wrigley Field commemorating that National League pennant. But you will not find a single flag for the last 60-something, 70-something years that they didn't win it, right? We highlight the successes. We do not highlight the failures or the struggles. And so we tend to do that in our own life. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible is very honest, and it lays out for us not only the successes in people's life, but the failures in people's life. And when we look at a guy like Abraham, we learn things to, to a pattern. We learn principles and things that we can go, you know what, if we can do that, look at his life of faith. If, if that's what faith should look like. If, if I could be more like that, I could be more like Jesus. But we also see and learn things that we should, go, we should avoid. And so if we're dealing with the character, honestly, we'll do that. And this morning, we're going to look at this picture of faith and failing. Because if we got really honest, we all know that we've failed from time to time. We've struggled. We've messed up. We've blown it. We've sinned. And we're going to learn some principles, I think, two principles this morning that I want us to see from this passage that will help us, I hope, get back up and get on the journey again. Get back up and get back to walking with the Lord again. Get back up and get back on the path again. Because that's a believer. Believer's not someone who doesn't sin, but it is someone who responds differently to sin than an unbeliever does. Very different. Believers and unbelievers both sin. One, though, repents of sin and deals with sin, and confesses sin and forsakes sin and hates sin and wants to get away from sin and gets back up when they fall. They fall down, but they get up and they begin to pursue the Lord again. And so... I'm hoping that from Abraham's story here in Genesis 20, we'll learn a couple of principles that will help us to get up and get going again if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. And I hope there's also some information in here for you this morning if you're not a believer that will help you maybe begin your journey of faith and see the need that we all have for someone who has not failed in the journey. So before we read together, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 20, starting in verse 1. We're going to read, and we'll talk about it, read, and we'll talk about it, and then we'll get, have our application points. Before we do that, let's ask the Lord to speak to us. Father, we're grateful today for the Word of God. And before we even read it, Lord, we confess that we need it. 
And we ask as we read it that you would open our eyes to see and to understand spiritual truth and to hear your word with the intention of obeying it this morning and help us to be doers and obeyers of your word. Teach us principles from your word that would be life-changing for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, starting in verse 1 of Genesis 20. It's on the screen if you don't have the word with you this morning. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he, journeyed, he sojourned in Gerar, Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord... Will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you. And you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die and all who are yours. So let's pause there for a second see what's happening here. In verse 1, we see here that Abraham has moved. Now, when you leave off in chapters 18 and 19 is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we looked last week, Abraham was praying for Sodom, for God to spare Sodom. And, for, and, and would God intervene? Would God show his justice and his mercy? And God spared Lot and his family, or those who, those who stayed the course. He spared him and his daughters. But the rest of the city is destroyed. And so, but in that last section, in chapter 18 and in chapter 17, that same encounter where God tells Abraham that he's about to destroy Sodom, he also told Abraham that he's about to have a child. Now, he'd already told Abraham that. But for the first time, God had begun revealing to him in chapter 17 and 18 that the mother of that child would be his wife, Sarah. And that at 90 years of age, she was going to have the promised child, Isaac. So Abraham knows Sarah's the mother, the child is coming, and Isaac will be his name. He knows all that when chapter 20 happens. So think about that as we're reading this. He has that promise from God where God has audibly spoken to him and given him this information. But here... He's moving again, and he's staying within the promised land. This is not like back in chapter 12 when he moved to Egypt to escape the famine. He is within the context of the promised land, but he's in a new place. He's around new people. And we're going to see, we see, are seeing here that some fears that tended to stir in Abraham in these kind of situations are stirring in him again. And in verse 2, we see that four little word lie of Abraham. She is my sister. That's what he told Abimelech. Now, there's not a lot of explaining here in these first few verses. It happens kind of quickly. And that's because it's, it knows it's already given us the context in chapter 12 where Abraham did this back then. In chapter 12, right after Abraham comes to faith, right after God calls him out to begin to come following him, uh, not long after that, a, a, a famine strikes the land. And so he needs food, so he moves to Egypt. He leaves the promised land area and he goes to Egypt to get food. And while he's there, Pharaoh has an eye for his bride, Sarai, as she's called then. And Sarai, the Bible tells us in chapter 12, was a beautiful, beautiful woman. And so Pharaoh says, I'd like to take her into to my court. I'd like her to be one of my wives. Well, Abraham is afraid that 
Pharaoh might kill him for his wife. So he decides to say, well, we'll, look, we'll, we'll, we'll tell him you're my sister. And that way, yeah, you'll have to go marry him, but I'll still be alive, you know. And so, and that happens, and God intervenes, right? And all this, you know, all this, this everything begins to work against Egypt. And God exposes this, and, and you see that happen in chapter 12. So when you get to chapter 20, here's what you need to understand. He's doing it again. The same thing. The same sin. The same lie. And what we begin to learn is this is like his little shtick when he mows into a town. This is just a bad pattern, a bad habit in Abraham's life. He moves into a town. He's a little intimidated by the king. He's like, hey, honey, remember the sister story? Let's play that one again because I like being alive and I'm afraid they'll kill me. And so that's what's going on here. Now, here's the thing. She is his sister. She's his half-sister. Okay? Weird story. I can imagine Abraham telling that story probably. Uh, different mom, same dad. I don't know, you know, you know how did you two meet? <laughs> you know? um, weird story, right? And now... Their relationship later on in Mosaic Law is forbidden. This was a really long time ago, and we really don't have time to go into explaining what's going on here in this context. But here's what you need to understand. She is his half-sister. But that's not what is important in this context. Abimelech could care less that she's his half-sister. But he cares very much to know if she was his wife. And so he lies. Now, in verse 3, though, you see, but God came to Abimelech in a dream. God intervenes. And how many times in the Bible do we see Man messing up, and then we see a but God. That is the story of the Bible. All through the Bible, you see man's sin, but God, right, intervenes in God's grace and God's mercy. And in his grace and in his mercy, God is intervening to protect the Messianic line. He calls Abram, Ab, excuse me, Abim, Abimelech a dead man. Why? Because he had taken another man's wife. God is taking Abraham's marriage covenant to Sarah way more serious than Abraham is at this point. God takes it very seriously. And that is a reminder for us, whether you take your marriage seriously or not, God does. And in verse 4, Abimelech says, God, I didn't approach the woman. What he means is, we have not consummated this marriage. I have not laid a hand on her. And he points out his ignorance in the matter. I didn't know. I thought she was his sister. You know, I had no idea. And he points out that she was, he had no idea that she was married because Abraham had purposely hid that from him and deceived him by just leading him to believe that she was his sister and only his sister. And we see that Abraham's sin this time is even corrupting his wife because she, he says, she told, she told me the same thing. She's going along with the, with the plan here. Now, Abimelech's name means son of the king. It could have been a title, much like Pharaoh. And it, God speaks to him in a dream, and what, what is happening here is God is intervening to protect the integrity of the Messianic line. God had told Abraham, he had made a promise, there is one coming through Sarah, your offspring. His name will be Isaac. And he's also told Abraham that from that promised offspring, there's going to be one particular offspring who's going to possess the gate of his enemies, as he's going to tell him later on in chapter 22. God has a plan here for Abraham and for his lineage. And God's not going to let Abimelech mess that up or mess up the integrity of it. Remember, this is within the year that God had told him they would conceive a child. The last thing that needs to happen is for people to think this child belongs to Abimelech, some pagan king, and not through Abraham, the one that God had given the promise to. You see what I'm saying? Everything's on the line. Abraham's about to mess everything up. This is a crisis moment. If you're reading this as uh, a, a Jew as, as, as from the nation of Israel when this was originally passed down as written by Moses and you're reading this, you get to this point and you're like, oh my, what is going on? What is Father Abraham doing? This is Christ's moment. 
but God saves the day, and God protects the line. And notice in verse 7, Abimelech is still being held responsible for correcting this issue. Oh, I know you didn't know. I'm still going to kill you if you don't give her back. Right? You say, I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know. Sin is sin. No matter what we, no matter what, sin is sin. Right? And so now, Abimelech, you've got a choice to make. I know you've taken this woman as your wife. You've not consummated this. She belongs to someone else. And so here's the deal. You've got an opportunity here to correct what you've done wrong. You can correct what you've done wrong. You can be judged for what you've done wrong. It's your choice, right? And so he had a choice. God was still holding him to an account for this. And so Abimelech's like, you've got it, right? Now, verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? In other words, what did we do that would make you do this to us? Verse 11, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. In every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. And there's that shtick, right? Every place we go. And Abraham's pulling the whole, If you really love me, this is the kindness you must do to me. That word kindness is the Hebrew word hesed, right? Sometimes you used to speak of the covenant love of God. Here it means the idea of um, saving someone from trouble. And Abraham gives his reason. He justifies his reason for this sin. And there's no justification for it. And notice Abimelech says, What have you done to bring about this great sin? That is a phrase used throughout the Old Testament to refer specifically to adultery. And here's this pagan king. This polygamist who believes in multiple gods, right? He's got more regards in this moment for the sanctity of the marriage covenant than the believer. It's a, this, this whole passage is an incredible rebuke upon Abraham. And Abraham begins to justify, saying, well, yeah, but I thought, and I thought, and I thought. That gets us in trouble a lot of times. Not I sought the Lord, and he told me. Not I sought godly counsel, and he told me. I just got to thinking... Verse 13, he actually seems to be blaming God. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, when God caused you to wander from your father, you mean when God saved your wicked self from your paganism and made you a follower of his? When God caused me to wander aimlessly? You know, he's kind of pointing the finger at God a little bit and saying, you know, if God hadn't called me to leave the place where I was, I wouldn't be put in these situations where I felt like I had to lie all the time. He's justifying his lies by the situations he feels like God has put him into. That he feels like it's untenable. And he admits, like I said, to manipulating his wife. And so this whole scene here, Abraham still does not look good. Then in verse 14, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they were bore children. 
For the Lord had closed all, closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, so Abimelech's ready to resolve the issue. And he goes out of his way to vindicate Sarah and make sure it's known that Sarah is innocent. That shows great respect for her, but don't miss the design of God in that and the integrity of the Messianic line. Verse 17, Abraham prays for Abimelech and he gets healed and so does his wife and female servants. God had shut everything down, right? There, nobody was going to have any kids until this got fixed. And so, so God had just, had just he, he's sick, Abimelech's sick. The ladies, they're not able to have children. Everything's different in their land now because of this. But then Abraham prays and everything's better. Now remember, it's Abraham that God had chosen to mediate his blessing to the nations. You will be a blessing to the nations. And so it is Abraham because his sin did not change his identity. He was the same person after his sin that he was before his sin. And his sin did not change his identity. And he is still the one who is supposed to mediate the blessing of God to the nations. And he prays for them and they're healed. Now, two things, I believe. Big things. There's a lot of things we could talk about in this passage. But two big things to help us get up and get going again when we fail. Number one, we need to recognize and deal with the sin and the sin beneath the sin. Recognize and deal with our sin, but also the sin or sins that are beneath the sin. Now, the obvious sin here that we see in Abraham's life is deception and lying. That's just obvious. Abraham tells a half-truth. This is my sister. And she is. But like we said, she's more than that. And it's the more than that that matters here. That's all that really matters. The fact that she's his sister is beside the point. The fact that she's his wife. And obviously, you know, we could talk here in Paul's right here and say, you know, we want to be a people known for our honesty and not our deception, right? The Bible talks about we're to speak truth to one another as the people of God. And manipulating half-truths to purposely deceive is just as wrong and clearly wrong as just speaking a false statement. Abraham had a lying problem that he needed to deal with, but he had more than a lying problem. But he didn't have less than a lying problem. So let's understand that. So there was a sin to be dealt with, and that was his lies. <laughs> but there was sin that we're going to see here in just a moment that was running beneath that. Okay, So we have to deal with the sin that we see and understand by judging it. Seeing it as offensive to God, repenting of it, confessing it. And we learn in this passage that this is something Abraham had decided to do years ago. This was a blind spot in his life. As a new believer, he's committing this sin. A couple decades later, as a mature believer, he commits this same sin again. Do you have sins that you've committed more than once in your life? Well, sure you have, unless you're lying right now. That's probably not the first time you've done that one, right? Sure we have. We've all got sins that you've done more than one time in your life. You know, some failures, some sins have ways of repeating themselves. You have certain things that you're more tempted to than others. And maybe more tempted to than the person in front of you or behind you or beside you and vice versa. There are certain things that you might be more tempted to because of your gender, because of your situation in life, because of your context, because of your surround, or just because of your nature and how you're wired and what you like and what you don't like. Everybody's different. Right? We know that. We're different people. And we sin in all kinds of different creative ways sometimes. Sin has a way, though, of repeating itself in our lives, but it's not always the same sin for different people. Sometimes it's different sins for different people. There are some failures that have a way of repeating themselves. And there are some situations that are more tempting for you than others. There are some circumstances and situations where you will be more tempted to sin than you would in other contexts or more than your neighbor would. 
Abraham here is in a season of transition, just as he was when he was in Egypt. We see him say that it was when they would go to a new place that he'd have Sarah help him and pull this ruse. Anytime they went to a new place, he would have this desire to hide their marriage relationship. These particular situations were particularly tempting for Abraham. More so than for Sarah, I believe. He's kind of conning her into it. She's going along with it. It's his idea. Some situations are bad for everyone, right? There are some situations that are tempting and nobody belongs in that situation. Nobody should be in a compromising situation with the opposite sex that's not their spouse, right? Some situations are bad for everyone. Some situations are particularly bad for you. And the way you're wired and the way your flesh is tempted, there are some situations and some circumstances that I'm tempted that you're not as tempted or you're tempted and I'm not as tempted because we're all different. So there's some sins in your life that you're more tempted to and there's some situations that are more difficult for you to handle than others. Certain people that you have a more difficult time being around, things of that nature. Some situations, circumstances, places. So you need to know yourself and know your own struggles. We don't fight sin blindly. Well, we shouldn't. We fight it with wisdom. Admitting the areas that we're weak and the situations that tempt us, that doesn't make us weak people. That makes you smart. That makes you godly. That makes you humble. That's how we fight sin. So first we learn we need to deal with our sin, and it helps to know the failures we're prone to, but we also need to deal with the sin beneath the sin. So if you're going to fight sin, it helps not only to fight the sin, but fight what's beneath the sin. Growing up, I remember every now and then, certain times of year, you'd go out in the yard or in somebody else's yard, whatever, and you would see these little tracks all through the yard, right? And the grass would just be all done up like that. All that, you know, just all through the yard, just ruin the yard. A little mole had gotten under the ground, right? And they would just make these little, carve these little paths, and just ruin, just tear your yard all to pieces. There's two ways to deal with that mole or that situation in your yard. One is just go out there and fix the yard. And next weekend, you can fix the yard again. And the next weekend, you can fix the yard again. And the next thing, we can fix the yard again. The other way is to eliminate the mole and then fix the yard. Okay? Now, when it comes to dealing with sin, we don't just need to fix the yard. We need to eliminate the mole. See what I'm saying? We got to do a deeper work here. Sometimes there's more involved. Sometimes it's not just that you lied. It's why you lied. And if you don't understand why you lied, you're going to lie again. If you don't understand why you did this, you're, you're going to do this again because there's a reason, underlying reason, and it's usually a sinful reason. It's usually an idolatrous reason because there's sin beneath our sins, and sometimes there's sin even beneath that. Why does Abraham deceive the king? Verse 11, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. It's the same reason he did it in chapter 12. He's afraid. It's fear. This idea that they would kill him for his bride. Now, over in chapter 12, People discuss, you know, she's, his wife is 90 years old at this point. Over, she's much younger than that at, this other, at, the, at the first time. But, and the Bible makes it very clear that she's beautiful, right? And some people actually believe in this situation because Abraham had become so rich and powerful by this point that the guy might have wanted to marry his relative, his sister, to, to create a strategic relationship with Abraham. It might, it might have had less to do with Sarah and more of that strategic relationship. We really don't know. It doesn't matter whether he's 75 or 100. He's committing the same sin, tempted in the same way. And it's not because he just likes telling lies. He's telling the lies. He's deceiving because he's got a fear problem. And it's particularly a fear of man. In this, we see that Abraham fears man more than he fears God in this moment in his life. 
He seems to think both too little of the people of that land and too little of God. He thinks too little of God as in God can't protect him from this situation. And he thinks too little of the people because he assumes that they'll just want to kill him. And we see, he says, I don't think there's any fear of, fear of God in your eyes. And what he means is, I don't think you really have a moral compass. I think you're probably a lot like Sodom. And this is, for the guy that's supposed to be kind of like the first missionary to the Gentiles, this is not a great way to start. Let's just assume everybody's always their worst. Let's just assume that everybody's worse than me, right? Let's assume everybody has no moral compass whatsoever. And God's going to teach him very quickly. Oh, they, no, they did. They seem to have a little more respect here for marriage and for, and, for, and for your life than you thought they would. And a key fear we see throughout the Bible is the fear of man. And that's the fear that Abraham is dealing with here. It's like peeling back an onion when we look at this passage. You remove one layer of the lie, then you look many times there's another layer. And beneath that here we see the fear of man. And many times a lot of our sins has fear beneath it. A lot of it is specifically the fear of man. In Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare, it says. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. It's like pitted against one another. Fear of man, trust in the Lord. As if you can't do both. You can. The fear of man is, lays a snare. It, it, it ensnares. Ed Welch said in the book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, he defines the fear of man as this. We replace God with people. Instead of biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear others instead. He says there are three primary reasons we fear man. One is because they can expose and humiliate us. The other is they reject and ridicule us. And finally, they can attack and threaten us. So, for example, no one wants to be made fun of and humiliated and laughed at. Nobody wants to be an outcast and completely rejected by their friends or family members. And nobody wants to be harmed physically. And these are all reasons we fear man. So here, a sin beneath his sin of lying is fear and in particular kind of fear, a fear of man. It's why people lie about how much money they make. That's why they do it. Fear of man. What they think about me. It's why people lie about how they're doing and the health of their marriage. Worried about what people think about us. It's a fear of man. It's why some people can't say no to anything. What will they think if I say no? They'll think I'm this or they'll think I'm that. It's why some people say yes to everything. One person's afraid that people are going to think less of them. If they say yes, so they say yes. One is afraid what people will think if they fail, so they say no, so they don't risk anything and fail. It's not always about being attacked or humiliated. Sometimes we show fear of people by caring just too much about what they think or seeking too hard for their approval. And it can lead to all kinds of other sin. Now, step back for a second from the fear of man, just look at fear in general. That, the most common command in the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible beginning to end, the most common command is do not fear or fear not. Some variation of not being afraid. Do not fear, fear not. What do you think that is? Do you think God, who made us and has given us his word, might know that that might be the most common struggle of humanity? Might just be fear? You know, here's one reason I think you see that particular command more than any other in the Bible, and that is because fear is a gateway sin. You know, you heard of gateway drugs, right? You start in this one, next thing you know, you're way over here in this one. That's the way fear works. It's a, it's a, it begins as this, you know, this fear of whatever, and then it, you, Abraham's lying, right? He's, he's risking the integrity of the messianic line. He, he's putting Abimelech's life at risk because God's about to kill him, right? I mean, all these things, it's just like a snowball effect that begins to happen and all started with fear. It's like this gateway sin to other sins. Think of how many things in your life, 
How many of your spiritual failures were rooted in fear? People don't share their faith out of fear. There's some Christians who have maybe never shared their faith clearly with someone. This is out of fear. A man has what some term a midlife crisis and he goes out and gets a new car and a new girl. This is fear. It's fear. Fear of growing old, fear of a lot of things. It's rooted in fear. A teenager succumbs to peer pressure and fear. We may fail to live generously and to give generously out of fear of not having enough. Fear has a way of opening up all kinds of other sins to us and other problems. Now there's a next layer. The problem with fear is it reveals we're not walking in faith. We're always choosing either to live by faith or to not live by faith. And beneath Abraham's lying was fear, and that fear revealed something. It revealed that he didn't make his decision based on faith. Not that he wasn't a person of faith. Obviously he was. He's the father of faith, right? He obviously believed God. He had this unwavering faith in God, but he made this particular decision was not being rooted in that faith. It was being rooted in fear, and so there was a lack of faith there. Think, God had just promised Abraham that him and Sarah are going to have a baby in the next year, like I mentioned. He knows God's at work. He knows God's stirring and God's doing something. So why would he fear a foreign king? Why would he think, if he believes God's promise, why would he think that God would let anything happen to him until God was through with him? Well, obviously he believes God's promise, but he's, he's failing to connect the dots in every decision. We do that sometimes. We see the big picture, we get the big picture, and then we don't connect the dots in the everyday decisions. Abraham's fear for his life shows that he's just not trusting God in that moment with that decision. Behind many of our sins is the sin of fear, but behind every single one of our sins is the sin of a lapse of faith, a walking in faith. Think about this. Every sin is an act of saying in that moment, I don't believe God is good enough for or I don't believe God can satisfy, or I don't believe God is enough for, I don't believe God knows best in this situation, I don't believe it is true when God says this, but rather this is true, I don't believe God can be trusted with this part of my life. You can look at pretty much any sin in your life, and you can root it back to an I don't believe in that moment. Think about Adam and Eve. Sin first entered the world. How did Satan tempt him? God's not as good as you think he is. He's holding back on you. He knows something you don't know, and he don't want you to know it. He's not, as, he's, not, he's not as good as you think he is. And so you know why they committed that sin and they took of the fruit? Because in their heart, they begin to believe, God's not good as I thought he was. Maybe there's something to what the serpent is saying, because sin begins with this lapse of faith, not connecting the dots in our life. In our faith journey, we're going to have struggles, and you're going to have failures. And if you're going to fight sin in your life, it's critical that we see the sin beneath our sins, that we repair the yard, but we kill the mole, okay? And so sometimes we peel back that layer, and there's fear there. We need to confess and repent of that fear as well. But every time, we need to realize and remember that there's a faith issue and understand, what am I not believing about God in that moment? Since I struggle with this, what am I not believing about God in that moment? When I struggle with saying this or doing this or thinking this, what am I really believing about God in that moment? 
And we begin to attack that with what? With the gospel. That's why we talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves around here and reminding ourselves of the gospel and being in God's word because God's word and the gospel builds our faith because that's what our faith is rooted in. It's rooted in Christ, and Christ is the center of the gospel. And so we remind ourselves of that, remind ourselves of God's word, and we hold to God's promises because it builds our faith. And sometimes you need to go to a particular promise and hold to a particular promise and believe on a particular promise to fight a particular sin. That's using wisdom and fighting against sin. So if you're struggling with fill in the blank, you deal with that sin, but also ask yourself, what am I failing to believe about God? Where am I failing to trust God? What's causing this struggle? Deal with both. Fix the yard. Kill the mole. Second, second big principle. Recognize the hope despite your sin. This passage is filled with hope. It's a humiliating passage for Abraham, but it is an incredibly hopeful passage. Throughout this story, two things are very obvious. Abraham has definitely messed up, (laughs) and God is definitely at work. The story opens with Abraham's sin, but it quickly, by verse 3, God is taking control of the situation. And while Abraham was seemingly putting everything at risk, God is working to preserve and to protect everything that he's promised. So there's two big hopes here. First of all, there's hope because God is at work in Abraham's life. He's showing his faithfulness. See, now we know the big story. We know that Jesus comes, right? We know Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, nation of Israel, Jesus, right? Messiah. We see the big picture. And God had made a promise to Abraham that he was not going to let anything mess that up. So Sarah can't be hitched to Abimelech. Because that messes everything up and begins to change things. And God was committed to his promise. And God was committed to getting Jesus into the world. And when you see God's faithfulness to Abraham in Genesis 20, think about this. That is God being faithful, if you're a believer today, to you. He is preserving and protecting the messianic line of the Messiah that would save you. God's faithfulness is on radical display. He's at work in Abraham's life. You know, we can't always be counted on. I can't always be counted on. You can't always be counted on. We mess up. We fail. But what we're seeing throughout Abraham's life is God can always be counted on. He's always who he says he is. Now, Abimelech goes out of his way to make sure to vindicate Sarah in the middle of all this. Now, I mentioned earlier, this shows respect. But also, God, I believe God's orchestrating that. Whose idea was it for Abimelech to go to Abraham? It was God's. He says, you've got to go to Abraham and get prayed for or you're going to die. <laughs> You'll live if he prays for you. And every, everybody will be healed, but you've got to go get with Abraham. So who, who's orchestrating this? God is orchestrating this. And a lost pagan rebukes our forefather in the faith for his sin because God can use anybody to rebuke us in our sin. God's always at work to do what he says he's going to do. He's always at work in your life and always at work around you and God can use all sorts of things. God was exposing his sin. God was not going to let Abraham get away with this. You have done to me things that ought not to be done, he said. It was God that arranged the meeting. It was God that had Abraham pray for him. You know, you may have an unbelieving spouse that says to you, you used to not do this, but now you do that. Your attitude's been different. You might have an unbeliever at work that says to you, you know, I've always known you to be a person of integrity, but I noticed the other day. 
And you might sit there and think, you know, you don't even go to church. Who are you to tell me how to live my life? And it might be God has placed that person in your life to rebuke you from your sin. Because God can use anybody he wants to. And what a scourge, what a rebuke, what a shame it is when an unbelieving world has to call us out. God will let it happen. He let it happen to Abraham. Can you help imagine how hard it was for Abraham to hear this from a foreign idolatrous king? How humbling that was? A man who hears from God? A man who's, who's met with God and had God speak to him as this idolatrous king come to him and say, What have you done? There's hope. Because God confronts us with our sin. There's hope. This shows us that God's at work in our life. When you're being confronted for your sin, that shows you God's at work in your life. If you're an unbeliever and you're being confronted with your sin, there's hope. God's at work in your life. He's trying to draw you to Christ. If you're a believer and you're being confronted with your sin, there's hope. God's at work in your life. He's trying to purify you. Don't see the rebukes of others as judgment merely. See them as grace. It's God's grace. We can't experience healing in our lives. You know, if I get, if I get a thorn in my hand, I can't have that spot healed unless I remove the thorn. And sometimes... Somebody has to come along and go, hey, there's a big thorn in your hand. <laughs> and sometimes that person may or may not be a believer, but just be thankful that it's being pointed out in your life. So there was hope here because God was at work in his life. We see that in God showing his faithfulness. We see that in God exposing his sin. But there was also hope because God was continuing to work through Abraham's life. He wasn't just working in him. He was working through him. In verse 17, Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. People want to call him Abimelech for some reason. Abimelech. And also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. As hard as it was for Abraham to hear that rebuke. Imagine the awkwardness of now praying for this guy. And imagine the awkwardness on the king's part to now be prayed for by this guy. Here's your wife back. Would you please pray for me so that we can have kids around here again? I mean, this is weird, right? Awkward. One thing was clear to both parties. God was at work and he was at work through Abraham. It was very clear in this passage that Abraham's failure did not change the fact that he was chosen by God for a purpose and he was the one through whom God would bless the Gentiles. And the good news for us today is that God uses people who mess up. He still wants us. When we mess up, he still wants to use you for his glory. You can still be used to reach your neighbor. You can still be used to reach your family member. You can still be a blessing and encouragement to others. Yeah, there's consequences for sin. But I'm just talking about in your daily life as a believer in Christ, God can use you no matter how bad you've messed up. There's no Christian on the planet that Jesus doesn't still want in a local church, plugged into a local church, and being used to fulfill the Great Commission. There's a different role for everybody. But there's no one that Jesus doesn't want to work through if they're his. He wants to work through you in your workplace on your street corner. He wants to work through you and your family. He still wants to use you. There's been only one person throughout this book, throughout these stories, without sin. Only one. Abraham wasn't without sin. His son Isaac is going to commit the same sin Abraham did, by the way. You get over like three or four chapters, I think it's chapter 26, Isaac does the same stinking thing. Lies about his wife, Rebecca. She was a looker. They move into town. Hey, my dad used to pull this thing. <laughs> I heard my dad used to pull He wasn't even born when his dad was doing this, right? There's only one that's been without sin. 
Only one who's never faltered, never cowered in fear, who never spoke a lie, who always spoke the truth. Only one spotless, blemish one. And it wasn't Abraham, and it's not you or not me. It's one who came through Abraham, but one who was before Abraham. You know, Jesus said in the New Testament, before Abraham was, I am. And what Jesus is saying there is, I am God. I existed long before Abraham. I am eternal God, but I have... I've entered human history. I've taken on human flesh. I've, I've come into the world and I've, I've li- I'm living and living the sinless life that Abraham couldn't live and David couldn't live and Moses couldn't live and Paul and Peter and those guys couldn't live and you and I couldn't live. But Jesus lived that perfect, sinless life. And he's the only perfect hero that the Bible holds up to us. He's the only dude in a white hat in the story. Everybody else's hat's blemished. Or we're all wearing black hats. But the sinless one came to save sinful people, to save us from our sin. That's the great story of the Bible. There's one who hasn't failed, who hasn't faltered, who hasn't tripped up, who hasn't messed up. And he lives in our, he lived in our place and continues to live before God. He has came and lived a sinless life and rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God. And to this day, some 2,000 years later, he still hasn't sinned. He's still the sinless one. And the Bible says today, if you have never dealt with your sin, there is hope for you because of that one, the Lord Jesus. The Bible teaches very clearly that we're all sinners. We hear that a lot. We talk about that a lot here because the Bible talks about it a lot. And you may remember lies that you've told, things that you've said, things that you've done, ways that you've sinned against people, ways that you've sinned against God. Some maybe feel more gross and horrible to you. Some maybe you don't even remember. But the Bible says that there is, if you don't know Christ today, for every single one of us, when we stand outside of Christ, the Bible says there is a sin that runs underneath all those sins, and it's the sin of unbelief. It's the sin of unbelief. And that's why when someone continues in an unbroken, habitual, just full-hearted, rebellious pattern against God, right, sinning with their heart, just, man, and they say, but I'm a Christian because, you know, when I was eight years old, I prayed a prayer and, you know, got baptized four times and all that kind of stuff. The reason that they have reason to doubt, the reason that they have reason to doubt whether they really know God or not is because when you begin to peel back the layers, many times unbelief is what lays at the root of all that sin that they don't deal with. And the good news for us today is that Jesus died for unbelievers. He died for sinners. He died for people far from God. He, bore, he lived the sinless life we couldn't live. He bore our sin on the cross. He took the wrath of God. He took the punishment we deserve and he rose again so that you and I, when we believe in him, we put our faith and trust in him, it's no longer about the journey we walked. It's about the journey he walked in our place. Have you dealt with your sin? The sin of unbelief. And if you're a believer today, as many, most of us probably are in this room today. We are on a journey of faith. And we sin. We mess up. We do things we shouldn't do. We don't do the things we should do sometimes. And there are two very clear things that we see in this passage that we should do to get back up and get back on that path again. And one is to recognize and deal with both the sin that we know we've committed and also to do the harder work of dealing with the sin beneath that sin. So that we root it out. And then we need to recognize the hope that God is still at work in our life and he wants to still work through our life. And that's good news. 
He doesn't want us to just sit around and sulk forever. Go tell your friend about Jesus. Go love your neighbor. Let God use you. God still has a plan for you to use you to be a blessing to others. And so when we mess up, we need to deal with it. And we need to take hope in Christ. And we need to get busy because there's work to be done. Let's pray.